This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 17 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is God's word. Again, welcome to City Church. Glad that you're here. Um, We've been going through the Gospel of Mark together as a congregation now for over a year, and it is my submissive and uh, your hopeful goal that we'll finish this book on Easter Sunday of this year, um, which is ironically going to be chapter 16, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Last year, we studied the death of John the Baptist on Easter, uh, less than appropriate Easter text. This year, we're going to get it right, um, and God has just led us to that in his amazing sense of humor. Uh, In chapter 14, where we are right now, we're in the final section of the Gospel of Mark. Um, We've entered into the last few days of Jesus' life, and we've entered into his sufferings. If you're new to the Bible, as a lot of us are, you've got to remember that Jesus' sufferings have to be understood from multiple perspectives. He suffered emotionally, he suffered legally, and he suffered physically. But none of these can be compared to his sufferings spiritually. None of these that he deserve. When we get to chapter 15, we will study and we will be confronted by his legal sufferings. He was oppressed. He was treated unjustly. He was victimized and, and by, by those in authority. And then we'll talk about his physical sufferings. Again, in chapter 15, he was beaten. He was spit upon, mocked, tortured, crucified. But all of these will be performed upon him by his known enemies. In chapter 14, where we are right now, as we've read This morning together, we're listening to Jesus' emotional sufferings, the tragic treachery of his friends and disciples. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus will be in isolation. He'll be abandoned. He'll be betrayed. He'll be sold. 
He'll be deserted, and he'll be denied by his closest friends. As you look at our text this morning that I'll unpack for us, I wanna remind you that I will not preach specifically from verses 22 through 26. I covered that the last time we were together in the book of uh, Mark. It was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you'll remember that we covered about 3,400 years of history from the Passover event where God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, and we, we carried that Passover event all the way through to the Lord's Supper that we partook together uh, in communion. And two weeks ago, I explained at the Passover meal that Jesus and, and his disciples were celebrating um, was the last legitimate Passover meal, and that he has now given us his communion. And so I won't discuss, again, 22 through 26 today. If you want to go back and listen to that, it's online, and talk about what does it mean that Jesus says that the bread is his body? What does it mean that Jesus says that the wine is his blood. But before we leave 22 through 26 behind, I just want us to get a, a macro sort of blimp level view at our text this morning, 17 through 31. What we have in front of us is yet again another Mark and Sandwich. If you're new to us, hold on for just a second. Yet again, Mark starts a topic in verses 17 through 21. He leaves that idea or concept, goes to another topic in 22 through 26, only to return in 27 to the original topic. And again, he does this. He weaves these themes and these scenarios together so that he can make an entirely different point without ever saying a word. And that entirely different point is this. One commentator wrote, by this sandwich construction, Mark vividly portrays the many for whom Jesus pours out his life, which includes his own companions around the table. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's son is not someone else's sin, the sins of Caligula or Nero or the legion of tyrants ever since, but it's the sin of his very own disciples, of Peter, of Peter and James, of you and me. The self-sacrifice of Jesus described in 22 through 26 and really even before that starting in verse 11, the self-sacrifice of Jesus is presented in dramatic contrast to the infidelity of the disciples. If you're new to the church, you've got to hear this point right here. This is the gospel we preach every week. The original Last Supper was attended by traitors and cowards. It is not a table of merit and achievement but a table of need and grace. The good news is this. The text is telling us, before we leave it and dive into our portions today, it is telling us that the only prerequisite for the communion meal is need. Similarly, the only prerequisite for inclusion in gospel community is need. The only prerequisite for inclusion in this particular gospel community is need and understanding and growing in our belief that Jesus meets every one of those needs in his advent. So, with that summary of 3,400 years from 50,000 feet, let's focus on this specific night in redemptive history and consider today's passage in the following ways. One, being ambiguous. Two, being blunt. Three, a rendezvous. One, being ambiguous about betrayal. Two, being blunt about desertion and denial. And then three, a rendezvous of grace. Pick up with me in verse 17 if you have your scriptures with you. If not, uh, it should be in the worship folder on the insert that was given to you when you came in. And when it was Thursday evening, he came with the 12. 
And as they were reclining at table and eating, again, remember that they are celebrating the Passover uh, meal together, and Jesus is transforming it into the Lord's Supper. Jesus, uh, while they're there, kind of just breaks the celebratory tone of the event and announces his betrayal among the disciples. Now, the word betray, this is gonna come up again later. It's important. It means to hand over. It means to sell. It means to give up. It means to deliver over. It's a sin that is premeditated and a sin that is motivated. We know from the beginning of chapter 14 that Judas has decided that Jesus is worth more to him dead than alive. And so he sells him like a non-performing stock. Although Jesus gives a couple of qualifiers, consider how ambiguous he is. First qualifier, verse 18, the one who is eating with me. And so Jesus is saying, the one who is going to betray me and sell me over and consider me worth more money dead than alive, the one who will betray me is eating with me. Now we would have to believe, like every Passover celebration that is happening at this time um, in Jerusalem, we would have to believe that it's not just the 12 that are there, but most likely uh, the women that used to do ministry with Jesus and maybe even some kids and maybe even the owner of the house of the upper room. And so Jesus is saying, in this very room, I will be betrayed. And, and just like now in the Middle East, to betray someone after sharing a meal with them is regarded as the worst kind of treachery. And then Jesus gives another qualifier in verse 20. He says it's, it's gonna be one of the 12. So you would have thought sitting there that the 12 sitting at the table probably were not going to be the betrayer. It was probably somebody on the periphery, somebody on the edge, someone on the fringe. And Jesus says, nope, one of the 12. One of the 12 that can dip bread into the same bowl into which I am dipping. Now, I, I thought of this way too late to include it in the sermon about 12 minutes ago. But I'm struck by how often Jesus uses the word one to talk about his betrayer. I just began to think how fun a sermon could be on living in isolation and where that will lead you as opposed to community. I'll leave that to yourself and your reflection and your conversation later. But why was Jesus ambiguous at this point? Do you see this? He says, one of you will betray me. Why so ambiguous? Why doesn't he just come out and say it? Why not say, I'm gonna bring it up and I'm gonna tell you who? I mean, think about the sovereignty of Jesus at this point. He is in complete and utter control. His knowledge of all that will happen is so obvious in this section of Mark, this last week of his life, from the sending of his disciples to the exact details of the triumphal entry. Then he sends two more disciples to find the exact details of the Last Supper and the upper room. Even in our passage, in verse 30, he tells Peter, listen, this very night, before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me three times. And as scripture and history unfolds, exactly that happened. He's in complete control. He knows exactly what is going on. He says in verse 21, the son of man, talking about himself, as it is written of him, probably quoting or thinking of Psalm 41 where it says that someone who sits at the table with Jesus and dips bread with him is going to raise their heel against him, talking about Judas. And he says, listen, I know it's written that I'm gonna go this way, but woe to the one through whom, by whom or through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It'd be better if that person were not born. And John, we know that Jesus knows that Judas is his betrayer. So why is he being so ambiguous? I'll date myself a little bit here and associate with some of you in the room and also others that were raised by cable TV growing up. I mean, think about how every Perry Mason and every Matlock episode ended. You remember Perry Mason and Ben Matlock, right? Ben or Perry would say to the last minute, critically important witness, is the person you saw commit the crime in this room today? And the witness, still breathing very heavily from having run to the courtroom before the judge closed the case, said, yes, 
And Perry or Ben would say, can you identify that person? And everyone in the room gasps <gasps> as the witness points the finger at the culprit. It's Mrs. X or Mr. Y. And the judge always slams down the gavel. Bam! Order in the court. Bailiff, apprehend the criminal. Why isn't Jesus telling them who it is? I want us to think about this from two perspectives. First, and this one's going to be a little harder. I'm not going to spend a ton of time uh, explaining it to you or fighting with you about it. But I think Jesus is asking Judas to repent. I think he's saying, I see you, but woe to you if you go through with this. We have to remember in the mystery of who Jesus is, he's 100% God and 100% man. As the 100% God, he knows that Judas will betray him. He knows that Judas will repent to the scribes and Pharisees instead of repent to him. He knows it's gonna go down this way. But at the same time, as a 100% human and loving and faithful and righteous, all the time he has to hope for Judas to repent. I didn't think of this. Uh, There are many theologians out there who understand this as a kind act of Jesus towards Judas. This along with when he kisses him in the garden, he says, you're gonna betray me with a kiss? Again, calling Judas to reflection that any time we see a brother or sister in sin, if we do not go to them and try and penetrate their sin and draw them to repentance, we're not living in love. Whether it be Tim Keller Don Carson, Wayne Grudem, Paul Miller, the list could go on. They all say to some extent and to some degree and in the righteousness of Jesus, he is longing for Judas for the sake of Judas to stop what he's doing. I think that is absolutely beautiful. The second thing I want us to see in understanding why is he so ambiguous is a lot more about us. It's more important for us for sure. Jesus wanted to elicit the response that he got from them. Well, sort of. He wanted to elicit something like the response that he got from them. In their response, we see a glimmer of hope for the disciples. In their response, we see just a hint of humility. If you've been with us the whole time in Mark, Mark, because his primary source is Peter in telling his gospel, Mark's take on the disciples is not very pretty. They look like idiots all the time. But every now and then, there's a glimmer of hope that they might actually begin to walk in accordance with the gospel. And I think this is one of those glimmering places of hope. It's just the sliver of a chance. And I think this is why Jesus was so ambiguous, as he wanted every one of the 12 to look into his own heart and say, me? Look in verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? It's a very, very difficult phrase to translate from Greek to English. Um, uh, The NAS says, one by one, they said, surely not I, but no matter how you translate it, there's a question here. In the Greek language, there's clearly a question, not a statement. They don't say, not me. They say, me? No. No, not me. Me? Is it Is it me? They don't exactly deny it, but they don't exactly confess it. In theological terms, Jesus is trying to get them to believe, and I mean believe, as weird as that sounds. He's trying to get them and us to believe in the doctrine of the universality of sin. 
G.K. Chesterton, in a very famous illustration, uh, did this one time. A Catholic British writer um, was asked by the London Times, along with other prominent uh, men and women, to write essays on what is wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in a simple telegram, Dear Sirs, line break, line break, I am. Line break, line break, signed, G.K. Chesterton. The doctrine of the universality of sin says this, when it comes to talking about you and me and where we are in our hearts, it's not enough to talk about what we have done. It is also important for us to say what we're capable of doing under certain threats, certain temptations, certain pressures, certain opportunities. Could we produce great evil under certain circumstances that we have not yet experienced? The Bible says, absolutely. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that we may not be Judas through and through, but we all have Judas somewhere in us. I'll I'll mention the Tiger Woods situation two times in this sermon, and I would just like to say, are we tired of that yet? And a lot has been uh, said. Um, I've been blown away by how much I've heard about this Tiger Woods situation, and uh, not just in the media, and it is all over the media, but I hear his name everywhere I go. The men in the locker room at the Y, everyone has their own take on it, and everyone thinks something different. I have relatives from Kansas who call me as if Orlando is the size of Mayberry, and they're very nervous that the paparazzi outside his subdivision are driving me crazy, and I, I tell them, I have no idea where he lives, and I'm doing just fine. They did not call once when the debacle happened at Ivanhoe Road with the shooter. Not one call from my family. They all hear about Tiger Woods, and they're very concerned for me and my family that they might be taking pictures of us and putting them on the website. Uh, ESPN.com this Friday said that this is the sports story of the decade. And mused at the end if this might be the story of the decade. I think they're kind of missing something important called 9-11, but that's what sports writers tend to do. But listen, so much has been said and so much could be said, but not by me. Someone more wise, more mature, and more understanding could say a lot, but I will say two things in this sermon. Number one, This passage teaches me that I am capable of doing what he and all the other women did. If I truly believe in the universality of sin, I believe if God lifts his grace and his spirit from me at all, if I have the opportunity or the consequences and the circumstances, I would do it. That's what the universality of sin teaches. If at any point we said, I knew it, he was too squeaky clean, I'm not shocked, All those athletes do it, but not me. I'd never do it. Then we've forgotten the biblical doctrine of the universality of sin and Jesus' teaching here that is very clear in Mark 14. In fact, to go a bit further, if at some point in the last two weeks we haven't proactively said, I am capable of that, then I believe that we've forgotten and that we don't believe the doctrine of the universality of sin. Now, I said it was a glimmer of hope for the disciples, a sliver of humility, because it didn't last long. Let's consider Jesus being blunt. You'll move down with me to verse 27. Being blunt in the midst of desertion and denial. And Jesus said to them, 
You will all, talking about all 11 of them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Here Jesus is quoting an oracle, a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13 where where the the shepherd, the, the Messiah figure is standing next to God the Father and it says that God the Father is going to strike him. The sheep will be scattered. In their scattering, they will be refined, but they will be brought back to the Father through the same shepherd. Pretty amazing prophecy. And Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are going to all fall away. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, look at the self-righteousness here. The humility was not long-lasting. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Literally, he says, even though they all fall away, not me. Do you see how he excludes himself from the community of sinners violating the universality of sin? He totally expects the other 11 to fall away, but not him. And then verse 30, in a a literal translation from the Greek, listen how often Jesus pins him with the word you. Truly, I say to you that you, this very day, this very night, before two rooster crows, three times, me, you will deny. But literally, it says, Peter kept saying emphatically or insistently, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And it says they all kept saying the same. Now let's stop and just draw some quick application. This is why you guys pay me right here. Okay, this is important. I would be remiss and negligent if I did not tell you this. As your pastor, if you ever find yourself talking to Jesus and he says directly to you that you will do something in the future and even more so if he has an ancient Old Testament oracle to back it up, don't argue with him. <laughs> if you get nothing else, that's very important if you ever find yourself in that situation. Let's say you don't know the Old Testament real well and you don't know what's coming from the Old Testament, what's coming from his mouth, as new scripture, and you say, well, I don't know if it's Old Testament or not. How do I know if he's backing it up? When he says, as it is written, that's a really good sign that it's gonna happen exactly how God said it was gonna happen. But in case that never happens to us, which probably won't. How do we take this out of the context of 2,000 years ago and apply it to our hearts right now? How do we look for this stubborn arrogance? How do we look for this self-righteous blindness? How do we look for this judgmental, critical spirit towards others in our hearts and lives today? And I wanna talk to us about something I call future repentance. I wanna talk to us about something that I call in some of my counseling with you, repenting it forward. I want to talk about something that I've been taught, which is called leaning into the future repentantly. Truth from the Bible. The Bible says that none of us are without sin right now, and none of us are perfect right now. Truth from the Bible. The Bible says that each of us will sin in the future. Truth from the Bible. The Bible says that we will not be free from sin and unable to sin until we die or Jesus returns. And so, in a way, this passage is telling us that we will fall away in the future. I'd like for all of us to grow in the, what I call the discipline of future repentance. First, this is not what I am saying. I am not saying, I want to sin tomorrow at work. I'll repent now for it in advance so I can do it tomorrow guilt-free. It's not what I'm saying. Part of biblical repentance is a hatred for sin. Part of repentance is, I don't want to do it anymore. 
I'll give you a, a, a biblical example of what I think is future repentance. We had it in City Bible reading this week in Proverbs 30, uh, verses seven through nine. Uh, listen to this. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die, a request, which is what most of my future-oriented prayers are. They're usually requests. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, which actually that's repentance because he's saying he's a liar. This is a request. Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Now here's the future repentance. This is why he only wants enough to live on. Lest I be full or rich and deny you and say who is the Lord or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. As I think about my prayer life, I realized that, that, that I was primarily praying about the past with repentance. I was thinking about all the sins and the shortcomings and the commission and the omission and all the selfishness in my life and how it affected my wife and family. And that's good work to do. That's very biblical. Do not get me wrong. But I realized when I prayed for the future, I was primarily asking for things if it was God's will. But I was asking for physical things for you and for me. And, and I began to realize that I needed to grow in repenting into the future if I really believed believed in the universality of sin and its effects on me. This is what I'm saying. I know this is confusing and new. So I think it's best taught through illustration and example. God, please help me from lust, self-gratification, and adultery on this business trip where I will have opportunity unlike my ordinary day. God, please guard me from hating myself and the body you've given me when I'm at the beach today. Please keep me from trying to find my identity and my figure and not in you. God, please keep me from anger today. May I be joyful in all circumstances. God, please rescue me from materialism and the belief that I'll find happiness in things today as I shop for Christmas. God, please produce honesty in me and I, as I repent in advance that I want to lie tomorrow. I want to fib. I want to stretch the truth. I want to tell only part of the truth in that sales presentation. Please deliver me from me. God, please guard me from pride today when I hear back from my professor of how well I did on that midterm. God, I repent and confess that I have a pattern in my life of being stingy and judging people who are homeless or in need. I pray that you would deliver me from a cold heart and give me compassionate eyes to love however you see fit. I told you we would say two things about the Tiger Woods situation. And this is not necessarily about Tiger. I actually almost brought this illustration in a long time ago when Michael Phelps was caught in his transgressions. And he, I mean, on every article title, it was Michael Phelps' repentance, is what it said. And, and Michael did quite well, but he fell into a trap that I often see myself in, I see you in, and I see so many celebrities in when they come out to talk about their transgressions. It, it goes something like this. I'm not perfect, I agree with you. I am far from perfect. I agree with you. I am human. Yes, you are. And at some point, though, we tend to cross the line between biblical repentance and self-righteousness when we say, I will never do this again. If I had five minutes with Tiger, I would tell him I would do exactly what you did given the opportunity and the removal of God's grace. But please don't talk about what you're gonna do in the future. Let's just stop and say that repentance is this. I did this. I will do it again if you don't save me. Please save me. When we begin to make promises about the future, we're bringing works righteousness to Jesus and to the Father and saying, here, this is why you should love me. Here, this is why I'm righteous. Here, this is why I should be your child. And Jesus is saying, get that future-oriented stuff out of here. You are loved 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ and not in your promises. So, what would motivate us to repent forwards? We have to know that Jesus is the God of the rendezvous of grace. No, this is not my third reference to the tiger's candle. I mean rendezvous, like in the basic sense of the word, a prearranged assembly point, a prearranged meeting point, a prearranged coming together. I'm talking about verse 28. This should be a memory verse for us. If you remember nothing else about all the confusing things I said today, I want you to remember this point right here. This describes so many of my mornings of my life when I meet with Jesus to review the day before and start a new day. Read with me in verse 28. But after you all desert me, after I am raised up, after I die all alone on the cross for your sins, including deserting and denying, I will go before you to Galilee. This is one of the most beautiful, grace-filled, forgiveness-filled passages in all the Bible. The prophecies of desertion and the prophecy of denial is counterbalanced and triumphed over by the promise of reunion in Galilee after the resurrection. Consider what he does not say. I'm done with you. I'm finding a new 12. I'll take you back, but you're gonna have to find me. I'll take you back, but you'll have to grovel. You'll have to pay way more than 10%. You'll have to give me two consistent years of city Bible reading, and you have to bring to me the broom of the wicked witch of the West, and then you can come back. And look at when he is silent. This is actually almost as beautiful as what he said. 31 ends with Peter and the disciples emphatically saying over and over that Jesus is wrong. And he doesn't say anything. He's already said all there is to say about that. The only thing left to do is let the ancient prophecies unfold. I love the way the Gospel of Mark will end and we'll get there on Easter Sunday. The, the angel is talking to the women who discovered Christ's empty tomb, and this is what they say, chapter 16, verse six. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. I was thinking this week of another rendezvous of grace that I've heard over and over. It's the infamous story of my brother-in-law, Tim O'Strawbridge, and the 20 bucks. Some of you have probably heard it because you've heard him speak or teach. And, um, and I will try and remember exactly how he tells it or when he tells it 10 times, which variations of the story might be true. I'll try and get it as true to form as possible. But he tells the story of going out one uh, Friday night while he was in high school. He and his best friend, Jim Valini, had a double date arranged with their girlfriends. And they went out to dinner, they watched a movie, they went bowling, they had a blast. And right up to the stroke of midnight, and Timo walks into the house. Timo was about 6'7", 6'8", 6'9", a massive basketball and football player, played at the University of Florida. Just, I mean, about as handsome of a guy as you could meet back then, back then, I would remind you. And, um, <clears throat> and as always, his dad was asleep on the couch. Timo walked in the house, and this was the routine Timo and his six previous siblings went through every night. He'd wake them up, he'd tell them about the evening, and Grandpa Strawbridge loved having fun. He loved listening to anyone talk about having fun in their life. He listened to the story. We, we had a great meal at Panino's, we went to the movies, and we saw, I don't know, some, some John Wayne film, probably Clint Eastwood maybe. We went bowling, I beat Valencia again, I used my left hand, we took the girls home, and now I'm here. Grandpa's like, oh, that sounds so fun. I'm so glad you're out with your friends. I'm so glad you're enjoying life. What a great gift from God. He says to him, oh yeah, and Timo, 
Um, listen, we'll discuss in the morning how you paid for that wonderful night. Timo stopped dead in his tracks. He was caught. Right before he walked out the door, he saw a crisp new $20 bill on the counter by his dad's wallet. He took it without asking. Now, Tim will tell you that he thought about in dead silence for a few seconds so what, what he should do, and he said it felt like forever, but in the end, he knew that he would not sleep at all that night if he didn't walk back in the living room and deal with this now. So he walks back in the living room. Grandpa's already snoring. Nobody knows if he was actually back asleep or if he was just messing with Timo. Timo said, uh, Dad, uh, are you awake? Yeah, son, yeah, what, what can I do for you? Dad, if possible, I think I'd like to talk about that now. Talk about what, son? Um, I'd like to um, talk about how I funded tonight and, and maybe now instead of waiting until the morning, Grandpa never opening his eyes. He said, well, how'd you fund it? Um, I grabbed $20 off the counter. Was it your money? No, I, I was borrowing it. <laughs> borrowing it? Hey, I'll tell you what. We'll talk about this in the morning. <laughs> every morning, every Saturday morning, the Strawbridge boys would get up and go work construction with their dad. And Timo broke. I stole it. Grandpa said, I know. He said, you knew, how'd you know? He goes, I knew you were going out tonight. I knew you didn't have any money. I put $20 on the counter. Why? Because I knew you were a thief, but you didn't. Grandpa responded with a smile. I love you, son. I'm looking forward to working with you in the morning. Timo said, good night, dad. Every time I've ever heard Timo tell that story, which is in the dozens, Anytime his dad was present before he passed on, his dad would laugh and say with confidence, best $20 I ever invested in Timo. You can say, how dare he? He trapped him. He caused him to sin. The legalists in us will rile up against that. But grandpa did not cause Timo to sin. Grandpa revealed what was inside of him, a sinner. Timo needed to know that grandpa's love for him and his commitment to him is much like the commitment of our father to us had nothing to do with Timo's athleticism, nothing to do with his grades, nothing to do with his good looks, nothing to do with his obedience. His love for him was a love for him entirely, including his heart as a thief. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the rendezvous of grace with Peter and the other disciples. And I thank you for how even in advance you knew that they would fail you. I thank you for how in advance you went to the cross to pay for their sins, including their desertion and their denial. I thank you for the grace it is to us and the strength and the freedom it provides for us to know that you love us regardless of how we behave. I pray from that freedom and joy and gratitude you would produce righteous living in us, that we might be useful to you in the building of your kingdom. In your name we pray.